Johan, uh, thank you so much for being on the Honest Health podcast. I know, um, you know, you've been one of my most uh, loyal, trustworthy friends, and I and I'm so thankful for you to be um, on the podcast and 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 talk about your experience as uh, on your journey of becoming a physician. Um, so I was hoping for for the audience you could kind of introduce yourself, um, you know, who you are, what you do, where you study, um, what kind of medicine you're you're hoping to practice. Um, so I'll let you take it away. Cool. Thanks, Tushar. Um, I really appreciate your friendship too. Um, and it's really cool what you're trying to do here. Uh, so my name is Johan Pereira. I'm a fourth year medical student down at the University of South Florida. Uh, it's in Tampa, Florida. Um, I'm planning to pursue a career in family medicine um, with the hopes of eventually doing a lot uh, within family medicine, um, OB, PEDS, a little bit of general surgery, um, and internal medicine, um, with eventually a focus on international medicine. Um, so that's been kind of my passion in med school and uh, what I look forward to in the future. That's amazing, Johan. And I know we were talking a little bit before um, before we started recording. Uh, you you are in a very unique family medicine program. Is that correct? Yeah. So right now I'm in the process of applying for residency. Um, and the thing about family medicine is there's so many different kind of flavors of family medicine. There's over 500 different residency programs. And um, some of the ones that I'm interested in kind of getting a more broad base, uh, prepare you for rural or international practice. Um, so more surgical, more in the realm of if you're the only doctor for three to four hours away, are you able to treat 80 to 90% of the majority of diseases? So really learning to kind of manage things on your own and then refer out when you can't. Gotcha. But, That's awesome. And and I know you've done some international work before, right? Um, do you want to talk about yeah, a little bit about that? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my family comes from Sri Lanka. Um, so kind of all started with my uncle. He's a doctor in Sri Lanka. He's an emergency physician um, and got to work with him a little bit when I was an undergrad. And then while I was in med school, got to take two uh, separate trips uh, to Bolivia um, with the Christian Medical Dental Association. And basically, while we were there, we set up short term. It was one week. We went to different villages and basically set up short term medical clinics um, throughout the region, um, very rural, poor areas. Uh, a lot of what we did was kind of seeing what patients had, seeing what medications we had, you know, a lot of infectious diseases um, uncontrolled high blood pressure, uncontrolled diabetes, getting the medications and then getting them referrals to the appropriate places. Um, and then additionally to that, I got to go to Zambia, um, through my med school. I'm a part of the international medicine scholarly concentration and they funded me for a project to go to Zambia, uh, after the summer of my first year. Um, while I was there, worked with my uncle who's been a physician in Zambia for over 30 years now. Wow. Um, he mainly does kind of when he first went there, he kind of did everything. Um, he did OB, did pediatrics, did internal medicine, a little bit of surgery. And then throughout the years, his, his field has been more like infectious disease, HIV medicine. Um, some of the regions that he was treating when he first came there had like 80 to 90 percent infection rates with HIV. Um, but through his partnership with WHO and kind of uh, advocation for his patients, um, he's been able to get a lot of treatment and get those rates down, but he still cares for those kinds of patients. So while I was with him, I did a project on uh, glaucoma um, and glaucoma screening. Cool. Great. 
tell me what it was like to work in Zambia. Like how was, what was the, you know, what kind of patients were you treating? How, how did it mm-hmm. feel um, to kind of be in another country and kind of be the authority that mm-hmm. people look up to? Like when you're, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's, it's a very different, um, very different culture of medicine. I think there's a lot of um, poor health literacy um, as there is in the United States. Um, I think the kinds of things that they face and the kinds of things that the government cares about are very different than, you know, the things that we care about. Um, you know, one of the major causes of death in that region is maternal mortality. Um, and so a lot of their funding and resources are focused on the things that will kill patients, will kill patients early on. So versus in America where we're worried about, about like a lot about prevention and, um, chronic disease management there, they're worried about things that'll kill you. So HIV, um, you know, a lot of infectious diseases, malaria, and really people are trying to survive, you know? Mm. Um, so health is not, health is important, but really they're trying to survive and feed their families. So for example, uh, this is kind of a funny story. A lot of the, I was in a rural villages and a lot of them do are farmers or fishermen. And a few years ago, the WHO did a, they gave this huge grant and, you know, big award ceremony to basically get uh, malaria mosquito nets for all the one whole village. And, um, you know, they're like, man, this is going to really reduce the rate of malaria. They did a full like TV show and, you know, all these awards and everything like that. And, you know, clap, applauded themselves in the back. And then five months later, all the fish in that region along the Zambezi River died. And the reason was because they were using all those malaria nets to fish with, and it was laced with, <laughs> it was laced with anti-parasitic medication, and it killed all the fish. <laughs> oh no! So, so it's interesting, you know, kind of creating innovative strategies to really care for the patients and get them to care about their health. Um, so at times it's frustrating because you don't have the resources, you don't have the technology that you have available here in the U.S., but you make do with what you have, you know, hmm. and you try to do your best. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so did, was there ever like a, a solution to the, the malaria nets? Like did they, did they ever find protection um, from malaria? No, not really. They, <laughs> they just used them for fishing and then they killed all the fish and now, and then they didn't have fish. So then they had to do other things for their economy and they struggled economically. So I think it really take, it's really challenging to come in as an outsider and try to fix these problems, you know, the way from like a, a Western world perspective. Mm. And it's really important to understand the people and the way they kind of live and then be able to help from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. And I guess that's, that's kind of one of the reasons you're studying international medicine. Like it seems like, it seems like you getting this experience here is really going to be able to help you understand the plight of other people uh, when you start to visit them in other countries. So that's, that's great, man. Um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Um, cool. So yeah, I wanted to change gears a little bit. Um, I know we were talking a lot about the the flu, the flu. I don't, is it an mm-hmm. epidemic that you want to call it? I don't know if it's an epidemic status yet in the United States, but I know yeah. you, you were telling me you, you've been treating a lot of patients in the ICU who have been coming in mm-hmm. with the flu and, and kind of have comorbidities. Maybe you can talk and explain a little bit about, about what that means. Um, and, and yeah, like, so how, how has that been tr- treating those patients? Yeah. Um, the flu has been really tricky this year. Uh, so this, the CDC just released uh, kind of a release saying that the level of flu infection this year is pretty close to what 
we had back in 2009 um, with the swine flu. Mm. Uh, so there's been a lot of pediatric patients dying and elderly patients dying. Um, you know, the main comorbidities that you see kind of making you an increased risk for the flu is, you know, diabetes is a huge one. Um, anything that causes you to have any kind of immunosuppression. So whether you're on steroids, whether you have kidney disease, heart disease, um, basically any condition that would cause you to have a weakened immune system, especially patients with, you know, um, COPD, emphysema, asthma. Mm -hmm. Those are the patients that tend to do worse. Um, while I was in the ICU, I even saw a completely healthy 23-year-old girl. And, you know, she had gotten the flu. She was feeling okay um, at home. The doctor said, go home. And then she ended up in the ICU, um, intubated on a ventilator. And, you know, at the point where they were going to put her on ECMO, basically a machine that takes your blood out and oxygenates for you instead of using your lungs. Um, so she was really, really sick from the flu. And uh, this year's flu is, is actually a really bad strain. Um, most of the patients we've seen have not gotten the flu vaccine, um, even though the flu vaccine was only like 10 to 20% effective this year. We have noticed subjectively that the patients who did get the flu vaccine have a shorter, milder course. Um, and then along with that, you know, the most important thing for the flu is if someone suspects the flu, you know, main symptoms being like runny nose, cough, fever, body aches, uh, starting them on Tamiflu within the first 24 to 48 hours of symptoms. Um, and that's called Oseltamivir. It's an antiviral medication basically um, that can block the virus from multiplying more and really causing a full rampant infection. Mm. Great. And, and um, going back to the 23-year-old that you um, treated, did she have a comorbidity? And maybe you can just no. She didn't. She was perfectly healthy. Wow. Yeah, okay. she was. She was very healthy beforehand. Um, she didn't smoke. Didn't drink. No drugs. Um, just a normal twenty-three-year-old girl in college, and just got really sick with the flu. You know, she just didn't get the flu vaccine. And so, I would say the biggest, most important thing is you know if you're traveling, um, it's really important to wash your hands, take hand sanitizer with you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even. I would recommend using masks. You know, we were all mm -hmm. wearing masks in the hospital, all the doctors, because it's a respiratory virus and it can travel easily. If someone coughs, those droplets can travel very far. So wow. um, if you're traveling or, you're, you know, you're around in public, it's really important to wash your hands, wash your kids' hands hmm. um, to prevent the spread of the virus. Yeah. Right, right. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, that's good information. I mean, um, yeah, I've, I've just been seeing people people around me just getting the flu and I think there was even a stomach virus around here that was going around I don't know if mm. that has anything to do with it but um yeah I mean the flu this year is just insane um mm -hmm. so it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh you know there's people like you who are who are working around the clock to uh kind of save our save our patients here um <laughs> many doctors many nurses yeah. yeah um cool so uh I guess we'll change gears again um you were telling me about a free clinic that you run, um, a student-run free clinic. So I mm -hmm. guess uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the, the med school that you are, are studying at and, and kind of where it is and, and what the yeah. maybe specialty is and, um, and then talk about the clinic from there. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm at the University of South Florida, um, Marsani College of Medicine. Um, we're down in Tampa, beautiful sunny beaches. You know, we're 82-degree <laughs> weather today. Yeah. Um, so... Really love the weather down here. Uh, really awesome people. Our community is very diverse. Um, we have a primarily Hispanic community. Um, 
in terms of where our university is, and that's kind of the population that we serve at our free clinic. Uh, the name of the clinic is the Bridge Clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, feel free to type in USF Bridge Clinic and check it out online. Um, should come up on Google. Uh, this year, I've had the honor of serving as the executive student director, along with four other directors um, who are my fellow med students. Um, and it's been an amazing privilege to to serve these patients. Um, we serve a patient population of about 800, um, and we're entirely student-run. So we incorporate students from public health, physical therapy, social work, pharmacy, wow, um, and then also undergrads who help with interpreting for our sp- patients. 90% of our patients are Spanish-speaking, um, unsure of documentation we don't ask. And without us being a kind of gateway, um, these patients would be going to the ER for every single complaint and oftentimes they can't pay. Um, so we know that we've significantly reduced the, the burden of the ER, um, the cost, you know, the healthcare costs um, in our region. Um, and you know, we continue to try to expand our services uh, this year, we were able to receive a grant for about $40,000 um, to provide patients with diabetes with uh, insulin, um, which can be super expensive for patients, mm. and um, vaccines. So we got the pneumonia vaccine, the Tdap vaccine, um, which covers tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, um, the shingles vaccine, and then we also give out the flu vaccine at our clinic. So we're doing a lot of cool things, um, a lot of cool projects going on. And it's just an awesome collaboration, really trying to elevate the, the Tampa Bay community um, overall. You are doing an amazing job, uh, Johan. Thank you. Thank you for talking about that. Um, cool. Yeah. And, and uh, going back to the clinic, you said the name of the clinic was the Bridge Clinic. Is that right? Bridge, Bridge Clinic. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we'll have a link. We'll have a link to that uh, in the show notes. But um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing about that. Um, awesome. Yeah. Um, so what? So I guess we'll we'll keep moving on here. What is what is something that you do for your own personal wellness? Yeah, so med school can be pretty taxing, uh, and you know, there's I just read the other day about um, you know a resident or a medical student in New York who had uh, I think committed suicide, and you know it's it's a big issue in the medical community. Um, kind of, if you can't take care of yourself, then uh, how can you take care of others? Right. So. Um, it's a really good question. Um, for me personally, you know, a lot of my personal wellness uh, is a, is based around my relationships with other people. Um, I tend to be an extrovert and uh, love talking to people, um, you know, having fun with friends. Um, I'm a big sports guy. I uh, love to play tennis, basketball. So I try to keep active in those sports when I can, mm. um, when I'm not getting injured. Um, (laughs) um, I'm involved in church as well um, so that's a huge part of who I am and um, where I stay connected Um, so kind of multiple different ways to to stay well but I think the most important thing is kind of knowing yourself and and not getting lost in medicine but maintaining a a broad variety of interests and kind of doing things that make you happy too great Um, so when it comes to personal wellness, I'm sure you get a lot of patients who, who come in and I don't, I don't know if, uh, this is usually the top of patient's mind, but maybe they're, they're asking you for advice on like a, you know, a way to generally stay healthier or how to, uh, mm-hmm. do things for their own personal wellness. So, mm-hmm. so this is a two part question, ready? So, um, what is something that you wish your patients would ask you more of, um, like mm-hmm. a question or, or, uh, advice on something? And then 
what is it that you would tell them if they, they were to ask you this question? Um, it's a good question. I think I wish patients were, would ask me more like what's the best resource to use. I think mm. there's a lot of, you know, misinformation out there on the internet. Um, and I wish they would ask me like, what's a good resource for me to use to get accurate information. Mm-hmm. Um, cause anyone can publish anything and, um, there's just a lot of inaccurate information out there. So mm-hmm. my answer to that question, if patients asked me would be, you know, I really like Medscape. I think Medscape is easy to understand, mm-hmm. has good information. Um, for, for providers, um, most resource called up to date. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, it's a paid subscription, but, um, most doctors have it and they can give their patients like patient related information. And it's in like patient language, um, more in, you know, normal human language as opposed to medical language. Mm. Um, but it's accurate. It's, you know, research based, um, for example, things like vitamins or herbal supplements, you know, there is some data and stuff on that as well in there. So I think like, that's a good question that I think patients could ask is where can I get reliable information? Because we live in a society where it's so accessible and Mm. yeah. Okay, great. And so those were just to repeat them, those were Medscape and what was the other one? Uh, up to date, up to date requires a subscription. So that's kind of a hard one for patients to access, but most doctors have access to it. And if patients want information, they could ask, can you print out the up to date article on this condition or medication or whatever? Oh, cool. So, so even if you're going in for a physical or whatever, you can just be like, Hey, okay, that's cool. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, great. And let's see. So that was actually one of my questions I was going to ask you. What is one resource you would recommend to patients to get trusted? Oh, sorry. That? No, no, sorry. don't be sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. I'm glad you shared, shared that. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, like, what's what's a case or, or what are some things that you see over and over again in the clinic? Obviously, we talked about the flu. Um, but maybe what are, what are some other things that you kind of see over and over again that um, you feel like need to be addressed uh, on a larger scale, maybe? It's a good question. Um in terms of like young adults, adults, kids. Um, let's go with young adults. We'll, we'll go with young adults, young adults. and, and uh, yeah. Okay. Let's start with. Uh, yeah, I think a common thing in young adults is um, them kind of establishing autonomy for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so like 17, 18, 19, you know, we see some kids who still will come in with their moms mm. into the clinic and kind of. Um, not taking responsibility for their health Mm. and not building relationships with their physician and their provider. Mm. And that's super important because, you know, that's an age when um, there's a lot of sensitive things going on in your life, a lot of changes. And sometimes you don't want your parents to know about those things. Um, And so I think the biggest thing for young adults that we see is, you know, patients not willing to let go of their parents, Mm. um, not feeling comfortable being truthful with their provider. Mm. Um, and that can cause a lot of delay in treatment, you know, for example, with, uh, you know, STDs and pregnancy, teen pregnancy, things like that. You know, a lot of that is hidden from the provider because they're afraid of their parents finding out. Mm. And so teens understanding confidentiality and, you know, um, what that means with their provider, that there's a, a trustful relationship that's built. Um, I think those are kind of important things to that I've noticed. And, and does confidentiality start? Um, at a certain age, like, like if a 13, so, if a 13 year old were to come in with an STD or 
you know, God forbid, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Are you? Yeah, confidentiality to- is always always there. Um, it depends on the state, though, in terms of like treatment. Mm-hmm. So, um, some states, I'm not sure how it is in Jersey, New York, um, but in terms of treatment, for example, an STD, um, some states require parental consent. Some states don't require parental consent. Um, so, in that case, in Florida, uh, I'm not 100 percent sure about the law. To be honest with you. Um, for like a 13 year old. Um, but basically if it's like a medication or treatment, usually parental consent is required. Mm. Um, but that's state dependent. And then for, uh, for example, like there's certain conditions where, um, confidentiality kind of goes out the window and, Mm. uh, that's, um, in the case of harm to self, harm Mm. to somebody else, Mm -hmm. um, Certain states, if you know an underage person um, wants to get an abortion, um, so there's like different conditions that you know would require consent and confidentiality can be broken. But for most most things, actually, confidentiality can be maintained. Okay. Um, awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool, man. And okay, great. So um, I was hoping you could talk about. Uh, one of your most fulfilling moments treating a patient. So I know um, you have the student-run uh, clinic, and then maybe you have also like rotations that you're mm-hmm. doing outside of that. Um, so from either mm-hmm. either, and maybe you can talk about your rotations first. Actually, um, so yeah, sorry. What 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 rotations have you been doing, and what rotations are you, are you on currently? Yeah. Um, so last month I was on the ICU month in the medical ICU. Um, before that I was on a skin and bones elective. So I did ortho orthopedic sports medicine clinic. Um, I did, uh, a rheumatology clinic and dermatology clinic. Um, and then this month I'm on a surgery, surgery skills, advanced surgery skills, uh, month, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Kind of practicing suturing and, um, you know, laparoscopy and robotic skills, uh, endoscopy, colonoscopy, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's pretty, it's been pretty fun. Uh, for in term example of a patient, um, so yeah, what's last what, month, what's like a most, like a, I guess a fulfilling, uh, moment that you had treating a patient. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with one from the bridge clinic. Um, that kind of stuck out to me. There was one night where we had this patient and basically she was, she had diabetes. Um, you know, and for those of the listeners who don't understand or kind of know what diabetes is, basically it's, uh, your body's blood sugar levels get elevated and your normal hormone that controls your blood sugar levels basically doesn't work anymore. And, um, so you get what's called insulin resistance. Mm. And, uh, over time that basically causes you to have kind of developed what's called a metabolic syndrome, um, leading to obesity, leading to heart disease, um, increasing your risk for heart attack, stroke, things like that. Um, so this patient, she's 40, um, basically had raging diabetes and, uh, refused, didn't want to take treatment. You know, she kind of was like, I don't want to take treatment. You know, I don't think this is real. I can't feel the effects of this, so I'm not going to take my treatment. And um, the medical team had seen her. So the way our clinic is structured, we usually have a fourth-year med student and a second-year med student kind of go and see the patient. And usually the first or second-year medical student will kind of lead the conversation. So it's an awesome opportunity for them to get their, their practical skills while they're still kind of in the textbook. And then they'll present to an attending physician, and then they'll kind of go, go ahead with the plan together. Um, 
but they had kind of talked to the patient and the patient was still reluctant. She was Spanish speaking and the medical students were not Spanish speaking. The attending was not Spanish speaking. So they were using an interpreter. Um, so then they were like, hey, this patient's not listening. Would you mind talking to her? So I went in and talked to her for almost an hour and a half, two hours. And um, we kind of dissected the different reasons why she was not interested in taking treatment. Um, in the end of our conversation, she said, okay, I'll try it. So she started taking treatment. Um, and then we had the privilege of seeing her again two months later. And I saw her with a cardiology fellow. And, you know, it was rewarding when he was like, dude, you literally saved her life. And he said, you know, these are the patients that we see 10 years down the road coming in with a heart attack that we have to take into the lab at 12 o'clock at night because they have uncontrolled diabetes. So and I was like, nah, stop playing. You know, I didn't, I didn't save her <laughs> life. He's like, no, no, you, you saved her life. You know, um, wow. this is, this is a common scenario that I see all the time. And so, um, he just really commended what, you know, the bridge clinic was doing and, um, just how awesome it was that we're able to get these kind of diseases under control to prevent, you know, costly and, um, fatal kind of, uh, outcomes. So, that, yeah, I mean, um, say no more. That was incredible. And I really liked how you said um, you had the privilege of seeing her again. And and I really appreciate that you said it that way. Like, as a future patient, I'm sure, like, um, you know, if I heard my doctor speaking that way about treating patients, like, that's a doctor that I want to, you know, continue to have a relationship with. Um, do you think mm -hmm. that's kind of the same across the board for a lot of physicians? You would hope that it is, but... Um, is, yeah, are there... I, I would hope that it is because um, at the end of the day, you know, it is an honor to to be in medical school. You know, there's a lot of um, people who vie for it's a competitive field um, and a lot of people try. And I think um, unfairly, this, the way the system is, you know, that a lot of people who would be good doctors don't get to be good doctors um, because their you know, grades aren't high enough or um, even though they would be a great doctor and they would be a great physician, um, there's kind of this. Uh, testing score kind of method and I, I don't know maybe it's a little screwed up but um, uh, in my class I think you know a lot of people would consider it to be a privilege um, but in medicine you know it's there's like a it's easy to get jaded mm -hmm. and uh, you got to kind of remind yourself daily what you're doing it for so mm. yeah um, I hope so <laughs> good to hear um, there was another thing that stuck out about what you're saying. I noticed, that, so you said that you talked to that patient for an hour and a half, two hours. And I was just wondering, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, one of my other friends mentioned something similar. Like when you really get to get uh, the history of a patient for that long and, and get to mm -hmm. talk to them for that long, um, mm -hmm. that's not something that a lot of doctors get to do because, uh, you know, there's so many mm -hmm. patients in a hospital. And, and obviously, like, a doctor would be lucky to even spend 15 minutes with, the, you know, with a patient sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you could tell me if that's wrong, but, uh, but I guess where I'm, yeah, getting, no, no. where I'm getting at is, um, like, do you think that's something that should be kind of done more or is it possible for doctors to spend more time with patients in general, or is it only yeah. like the privilege of a, of a medical student to be able to do that? Yeah, it's, no, it's a good question. You know, there's a lot of pressure for doctors to meet their billing quota and, um, you know, make their salary based on seeing a certain number of patients. So, and, so hold on, I want to pause you there. What can you explain what a billing quota is exactly? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So basically, um, a lot of, a lot of academic institutions, for example, um, when they hire or contract a new doctor, um, you're required to see a certain number of patients and okay. they kind of set your schedule for you. Okay. Um, and so if you're not meeting that quota or sitting that, they'll kind of be like, Hey, pull you aside, be like, Hey, you're not 
meeting the bottom line, right? right? In order for this clinic to function and make an amount, make a certain amount of money, we need you to see a certain amount of patients. Mm -hmm. And so that pressure is there from the administration side for a doctor to see a certain number of patients. And so, um, it's, it becomes a talent and a skill to be able to spend 15 minutes, but yet make the patient feel like you spent an hour and feel like you really care. Mm. Um, and so that's one of the challenges of medicine. I think, I think it's nice to be a medical student because you don't have that pressure on you and you're able to, you know, build close relationships with patients. You're not seeing as many patients as a normal doctor would. Um, and so you really get that opportunity to get to know your patients really well. So I've really enjoyed being a med student and we'll see how it is when I'm a doctor. I hope I would continue to spend the time that I can with my patients who need it. Mm -hmm. so. Um, so, so would you recommend like, I guess that people consider maybe going to these educational hospitals over, you know, maybe like a for-profit hospital just because they know that they're going to be getting a very uh, personalized level of treatment? Yeah, I mean, it has its benefits and its downsides. Um, in terms of like an academic state institution, they're going to accept most types of insurance, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever it may be, um, because they're state funded and they're required to. Um, with uh, the for profit, you know, there's this argument are you going to get better treatment or worse treatment? It kind of goes back and forth, you know. Um, usually the highest rated hospitals in the, in the states are usually. Um, the academic institutions because they're on the cutting edge of research. Um, a lot of their physicians are engaged in teaching actively. And the more you teach something, the more you're, you know, up to date with the current literature and current best, best value practices. Mm. Um, so it kind of depends. Um, there is a lot of what I see in academic medicine, a lot of uh, waste as well um, in terms of you kind of, you test things for learning. And so sometimes we, maybe do too much in for intervention as opposed to like a community hospital or for-profit hospital, like you're mentioning. Um, but it kind of weighs out to, you know, what's your value and, you know, do you want like um, really cutting edge care um, in terms of research? Do you want gold standard care? Do you want 20 people coming in your room? Right. Cause if you're in an academic hospital, it's a teaching hospital. So your case will be talked about, you know, at rounds and it'll be talked about, you know, on the floor and, mm. you know, a lot of medical students and doctors will be talking about your case. So, um, they don't ever say your name, but right. just to know that people are talking about you maybe might be a little scary for some people. So sure. it's kind of got to weigh all those different things. And do you think, do you think patients are maybe more hesitant to give like a full, full history or like a, be more truthful when they have so many people kind of on their case? Um, some patients I have noticed will get frustrated, be like, Hey, didn't I just tell this to your colleague? Oh, like, didn't I, I just tell this to you like five minutes ago? Cause you'll have the medical student come in and get a history. Then I'll have the resident come in and get a history. Then I'll have the attending come in and get a history. Right. And so they're saying the same story over and over again. Um, and so patients, some patients do get frustrated at that, but with some patients it actually helps because, you know, the first time you tell a story, you kind of are like fumbling around to explain the details and you kind of go around in circles. And then the second time you tell a story, it's a little more concise. And then the third time it's like a perfect story. So <laughs> for some patients, it actually helps the team to get the picture better. Um, but for some patients, it, it can be frustrating mm. to tell the same thing over and over again, especially if you're in like a lot of pain or you're really frustrated or, you know, you're really sick. You don't really want to talk that much. So mm. it has its ups and downs. Gotcha. Okay. Um, cool. And so uh, this is something that I, I wanted to just get clearance on because I haven't been able to find, uh, find, the, find the answer online. Um, 
can you talk about what inflammation is like exactly and like like is there uh i know there's a way for physicians to measure inflammation as a whole in your body but then there's also like an organ can be inflamed as well and i guess Mm -hmm. i want to know like they say like you know going into a sauna or or doing all these different exercises doing yoga blah blah blah, that reduces inflammation and Mm -hmm. i was just trying to understand exactly like what does inflammation look like in your body how is it measured and what kinds of chronic disease can it lead to over time yeah that's a great question um so inflammation has to do so our normal immune system right Mm -hmm. um it functions to fight the purpose of our immune system is to function to fight disease Mm -hmm. and um so say for example you get a bacteria um in your respiratory tract right and you develop a pneumonia Mm -hmm. um so inflammation is good in that case because what happens is the bacteria will trigger what's called your innate immune system and um because the, the bacteria have certain molecules on their surface that are recognized by your immune system. Mm-hmm. And basically, it'll trigger other immune cells to come to that region and basically fight that bacteria. And it will launch a full-scale war, right? So first, you have the identification of the bacteria. It figures it out. And then it figures out, okay, what kind of cell do I need to kill this bacteria? Mm-hmm. What kind of weapons, artillery do I need to use to kill the bacteria? And that's termed inflammation. Um, so inflammation is really your immune system attacking something. Mm-hmm. Um, and in cases of infection, it's, it's super important because without inflammation, the bacteria would basically rage on and um, wreak havoc on that particular system. Mm-hmm. So patients with weak immune systems, right, with immune deficiencies like HIV, they're more prone to severe infections and getting really sick from them and, and possibly dying. Mm-hmm. So inflammation is important um, for that reason. Now, what can happen is your body can get um, an overactivity of inflammation. Mm-hmm. So you can have, um, for example, for with, so let's take the same example where a bacteria affects the lungs. And so there can be two kinds of courses, right? So the first one is bacteria attacks the lungs, the patient's immune system responds normally, say in a healthy young adult, like you and me, um, our immune system would be activated. We might get cough. We might get runny nose. We might get fevers and fevers are even your immune system getting activated. Mm-hmm. The bacteria can't cause fever on its own. It's your own body's reaction to try to basically kill the bacteria. That's mm-hmm. what the fever is. Mm-hmm. And so in a normal person, that infection would take maybe 10 days. Um, and that's because your immune system's good. Now, say it's the same person and the immune system gets over rampaged. You can get what's called sepsis. You guys have probably heard of sepsis before, a septic infection or someone going into sepsis in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're fighting the same bacteria and your body just overreacts and kind of goes crazy and it causes a gross systemic um, inflammation of the body. And that can be very dangerous. You know, the patient's blood pressure will drop really fast, their heart will go up, um, and they might need, you know, an excess amount of fluids and um, require, you know, medications to keep their blood pressure up, and they're really, really sick. So that's kind of, inflammation is, I would call it a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of everyday life, you know, um, we live in kind of states of, pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory states. So medications like ibuprofen are anti-inflammatories, right? As you guys have heard, probably seen on ads and stuff like that. And I don't know the particulars of like yoga and how it affects inflammation, um, but exercise definitely does reduce inflammation. um, And there's certain biochemical pathways that 
I've forgotten since first year of med school, <laughs> to be completely honest. Well, um, well so, but, so just to, just to, um, kind of bring it back, I guess I'm still a little confused. So there are times where inflammation is beneficial, but then what is the general like day-to-day inflammation and what, like, why is that considered worse than the helpful inflammation? If that makes sense. Yeah. So say, so if you're not sick and, um, if, a, if you're not, you know, actively dealing with infection and there's inflammation, Basically, you're having a stress response in your body. Okay. And what can happen is your body can auto-react. So, um, like, you can have... So, for example, a really good example is, have you guys heard of, like, probiotics? You know, people taking probiotics. Right, right. So, this is a good example of where, you know, pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory really makes a difference. So, for example, in the GI tract, um, in your intestines, in your large colon you have a lot of bacteria, right? And a lot, a lot of bacteria. And there's certain types of bacteria, you know, there's billions and billions of bacteria and there's certain species of bacteria that will promote a pro-inflammatory state and certain species of bacteria that will promote promote an anti-inflammatory state. And those um, bacteria, if they're more geared towards a pro-inflammatory state, you can have higher incidence of things like colon cancer, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, which are all inflammatory diseases okay. versus the anti-inflammatory state can actually improve in certain conditions. And there's a lot of research going on. Um, and, you know, I'd have to look up the exact data on, you know, how soon it improves, but that's the idea and the theory behind probiotics is you shift your bacterial um, flora, you shift the types of bacteria, and then you shift the types of inflammation, like the inflammatory site, like, is it pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory? And um, basically the goal is to reduce the inflammation by shifting the bacteria so in your the, colon. the inflammation of the colon, um, colon itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I say inflammation, it's like the bacteria will trigger inflammatory reactions oh, in your colon because your colon has a lot of immune tissue. Okay. Yeah, your colon has a lot of immune tissue located in it. So, so, so I know it's a little complex and confusing. That's okay. So the way I understand it is that inflammation is more of a response to some yes. kind of external stress and yes. the more inflammation you have um, in your body, that just means that there are more like triggers that keep happening in your body over and over again. Yes. Yes. More or less. So stress, so stress can definitely, you know, um, cause, so it depends like with stress, you know, you can, it's hard to understand like, so you asked about measuring inflammation. Let me just backtrack a little bit. So you asked about measuring inflammation and, you know, there are certain conditions that we do try to measure the inflammation. Um, so certain things like autoimmune conditions like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, there's very like um, Sjogren's syndrome and scler- systemic sclerosis. You know, there's a lot of autoimmune conditions that we look at and there are certain markers that we can measure and things like called ESR, um, CRP, and those measure inflammation. Now, when there's increased inflammation, I think of it as, um, kind of like there's increased activity going on in your bloodstream. And so a long-term increased inflammation, which does happen when someone has diabetes, um, can trigger more coronary attacks and heart attacks, essentially. Um, so you get more plaque buildup and things like that in your, in your coronary arteries. Mm. Um, so long-term, in, long-term inflammatory states are dangerous. Gotcha. Definitely dangerous. Definitely dangerous. Yeah. So, so just to get this straight for myself. So, another example 
could be like, for example, someone who's, who smokes a lot, who has yes. who, like smokes cigarettes every day. They have yes. damaged cells in their lungs, which trigger yep. an inflammation response. Um, yep. So in order to see how bad maybe um, the cells are damaged, you would measure the inflammation to see how much inflammation is getting uh, kind of produced as yeah. a result of the da damaged and, cells. And it's not really, I don't, I wouldn't say that we use it and that's, we wouldn't use it like in that sense um, to measure inflammation because we know that smoking increases inflammatory, increases your risk for cancer or things like that. Right. Um, but chronic inflammation basically triggers changes in your body and that's why we care about it. Right. Okay. So with, with cancer, with smoking and cancer, what happens is that chronic inflammation, you're inflaming your cells, you're inflaming your cells, inflaming your cells, your cells have to adapt and change mm. to that chronic trigger, right? There's something, there's a chronic insult that you're putting on your lungs. And so your body adapts. And one of the ways that it adapts is it has to grow really, really fast because you're killing a lot of cells. Mm. And when you grow really, really fast, that's what happens with cancer. Cancer is just cells growing really, really fast. So those mutations that have happened in the cells basically over time um, is what causes what leads to cancer. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that, that was explained very beautifully. I think I finally get a grasp on what inflammation is. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think one thing that I'd like to share with um, listeners <coughs> is um, I think sometimes when people have a problem, they go to the doctor and, you know, you kind of expect answers. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you expect, you know, a lot of patients will expect their doctors to kind of figure out what's going on, mm -hmm. you know, figure out what's wrong with me. And some patients will get really frustrated because, you know, sometimes the answer doesn't happen in one shot. You know, it's kind of, you got to run some tests, you got to run some imaging. And the reason that we do things that way is the way we're trained is with medicine is you're kind of ruling out common things, right? So you start with the most common things and you try to rule them out. And that's why we do the lab tests. That's why we do the imaging. That's why we send you to do these crazy weird tests. Um, because the way we learn is you have to rule out the common things. And then once it gets more and more complex, you know, sometimes we may not even know what the disease is. You know, we don't know every disease that's out there, to be completely honest. You know, there's so many diseases we probably haven't discovered that we've been calling different names and we don't fully understand, you know, the mechanism behind the disease. And until we do that, we can't fully treat the disease. So I feel like a lot of patients get frustrated with their doctors, say, yeah, they didn't do anything for me. They just told me I had a, a virus and they told me to go home and drink water and take vitamin C. Like I could have done that myself. Mm. And um, I think patients, because of that, they have a distrust of doctors or um, they don't feel like doctors are out for their best or they don't know anything or whatever they may think. And um, I think it's important for patients to understand that from the doctor's side, you know, our job is to figure out really what's going to kill you um, and what's not going to kill you. And the fact is we don't have treatments for everything and we do our best. Um, we try our best to care for our patients, um, but we can't solve every problem. And, you know, it's really a, a doctor-patient partnership and a relationship that has to be built. Mm. Um, and we need to move away from this consumer mentality. You know, consumerism dominates our economy. It dominates our way of life in the U.S. And I feel like in medicine, we need to move away from that model of consumerism. The doctors are not just a consumer product that you pay your insurance to get. It's, it's really building a relationship, and their goal is to help you, you know, live a full life. Mm. Um, so I feel like that's one thing that I'd like to share is for patients not to view their doctors as a product that they're buying or mm. medicine as a product that they're buying. Um, but to really be grateful too for med for having medical care, like in the U S you know, we're so blessed to have a medical system, to have so many doctors, so many 
hospitals and resources where other places don't really have those opportunities, you know? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's one thing I'd like to share. That's uh, beautifully said, Johan. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I completely agree with you. Um, I think the the better the better relationship that you have with those who are treating treating you treating like taking care of your health it's just going to be better for you in the long term like there are mm-hmm. n- numerous studies that show that the quality of care that you're getting really depends on the relationship that you have a, a lot of it depends mm-hmm. on the relationship that you have with your healthcare provider and um so yeah i think what you said was was completely appropriate and and very um very true so thank you for that um Johan, that's uh, thank you know that's it. Thank you for your time, um, and I, I really appreciate everything that you shared with us and and talked about. And um, is there? Um, I know we talked about this before the podcast, but is there anywhere that listeners or patients can reach you? Uh, maybe an email address. Of course, if anyone reaches out to me on the comments, I will direct them to you. Um, but if there's anywhere else, yeah. Um, yeah if they want to reach out to me, um, they can reach out to me on my Twitter handle. Um, it's, uh, at yo, yo 23. Um, there's two underscores between the yo and the yo. So it's at yo underscore yo underscore 23. Great. Okay. So I will put that in the show notes as well. Um, once again, thanks for being on the honest health podcast, Johan, uh, really appreciate it. Um, and that's all for today. Mm-hmm.